are back with John 2. <laughs> um, picking up on the wedding at Cana. Um, we'll start with John 2, verse 1. It says, uh, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And we'll stop right there. Because this is awesome. Um, I'll... uh, Tiffany, you want to go first? Um, Okay, so... I'm trying to figure out where to start. So what really always uh, catches me up on this one is where Jesus says to Mary, like, woman, what business, like, what business do you have? Basically, what business of that is mine? Because it's like, dang, like, that's your mama. And like, with us, if I was looking at my mama and be like, woman, she would be like, excuse me. But um, one of the things, because we both read the same commentary this morning. One of the things that David, is it Guzik? Guzik. Guzik, um, points out is that it wasn't used in like a term. Um, it was used as a term of authority, but not that like Jesus is like um, degrading Mary, but more in a way that the relationship between them has changed. Like he doesn't call her mother but he does call her woman, but it's in a way of like, you have to recognize me as your Messiah now. And so that's why, you know, that's why it comes to follow where Mary says, whatever he tells you, do it. Cause in my mind, like reading it, obviously I love Mary, but my mind first is like, Jesus just told you it ain't his time. And you're still like turning to the servants, like whatever he says, do it. It's like Mary already had the confidence that Jesus was going to do it, even though he told her this isn't my time. And so, um, with Jesus just simply saying woman, the terminology he used is what made like um, it communicated between him and Mary. I'm your Messiah. So it also gave her the confidence to say, okay, he just acknowledged me in this way. So he's going to do what needs to be done. Uh, I was just going to say that um, in Catholicism, this is used a lot to, um, they, they skew it to kind of fit the idea that like because Mary told Jesus to uh to turn the water to um that there was no or to do whatever for the disciples to do whatever Jesus told them that uh she somehow has some kind of special authority or um power or divinity in that kind of sense but I grew up Catholic so that verse is always used to um support the ideology that uh catholics have i guess in terms of um mary's relationship with jesus and so yeah i don't know that's i just wanted to point that out so So one one other thing but it's not true that's not true the way they interpret it is not true (laughs) that's why (laughs) I, i forgot to say that one thing i read earlier that kind of made me uh that you just made me think of was 
it was talking about how Mary's, like the words of Mary recorded in the Bible are few, but every time the words are recorded, she consistently glorifies Jesus rather than herself. And so I feel like, like with the Catholicism, like I know Mary is like their, I mean, not their divinity, but that's how they recognize her as divine. And so, but if she's constantly going back to glorify Jesus, like it only makes sense that he should be, you know, the one that we glorify in the utmost. Um, so I'll uh, <clears throat> jump in kind of to expand a little bit on what Tiffany had uh, brought up. Um, so I was reading through actually a couple of commentaries today. I read through uh, Chuck Smith, uh, David Guzik, I think his name is, and there's a couple other words that I found on Blue Letter Bible. And um, they pointed out, because that too with me, when I was reading through this, I wanted to be able to have an answer for that passage because that's another one that I've always kind of thought about and it didn't really make sense like with how Jesus addressed Mary and then her reaction to it. It just seemed like in my mind, I always saw it as Mary saying, okay, Jesus come do this. And Jesus said, well, it's not my time. And Mary's like, okay, do whatever he says. And Jesus is like, okay, I guess it's my time. Um, and that's not, what it actually is. And so, um, like Tiffany was saying, the word that's used there, uh, woman, we don't have an accurate translation in English. Um, it is, uh, I think, I think it was David's commentary that said, uh, it's, it is a term that a son could use for a mother. Um, but it would not have been common in that setting. Um, and it was going to be something that was very different for, for Mary to hear. Um, this would be something where he is acknowledging, okay, this is not me. Like Tiffany said, this is not me addressing you as your son. This is me addressing you as your savior. Um, <laughs> I just love seeing Jess's expressions as we're going through this. Um, but, uh, um, you know, something else that they brought up too, and I believe this was in the um, uh, David's commentary as well, but Mary was very eager. We can assume Mary was very eager for Jesus to start his ministry, start doing the miracles and things like that because so I kind of know where Jesse's like going with this because we talked about it earlier, but um, she was eager for his ministry to start, but like rightfully so in a way that he'd already been baptized by John. He'd already went into the wilderness and he'd already been declared like from heaven, the son of God. And so Mary was already like, okay, like all of these things have already been brought to our attention. People know, let's get this started. But then she had other reasons too, and that's what Jesse's about to go into. But I wanted to add that in there with her eagerness. It makes sense for her to be eager and for her to be like, okay, let's let's do the miracles. Let's do this. Um, so a couple of reasons that he points out for Mary to be eager for Jesus to to really start his ministry. Um so we don't see Joseph. He's not there. Um, we, we do know, or we can assume that this is because Joseph has already passed away and it is custom for the Jewish people 
if the father passes away, then the eldest son becomes responsible for making sure everything is taken care of for the household. So because of that, um, we know that at the age of 12, Joseph was there. Um, but at the age of 13, Jesus would have become a man officially in the eyes of uh, his community. Um, so at some point, Joseph dies and Jesus is the one that has to make sure that things are taken care of. Um, that's probably why he really started doing uh, the carpentry, taking up his father's business and things like that, because he's providing for the family and he has to wait until he has a brother that is old enough to take over that role before he can really go out and do anything. And so I'm sure Mary being confident that Jesus was the Messiah feels like his, uh, his mission or his ministry has been held up because of that, because he's had to step into that role but I think also, um, I think Mary wants some validation and not in uh that sounds bad to say, but, you know, for, for Jesus's entire life <clears throat> up to this point, um, for the entire time that Mary has been the, the mother of Jesus, it's been controversial. It's been people looking down on her, talking bad about her, um, Yes, Joseph knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Joseph knew that it was um, immaculate conception. But I'm sure to probably everybody else, um, including their close friends and family and things like that, they probably, I would say they probably didn't really believe what Mary and Joseph were saying. They probably thought that Mary was unfaithful and Joseph was either too nice of a man to out her or he was just dumb and going along with what she was saying. And so Mary is really wanting to see Jesus start doing these miracles and stuff. So I feel like she can get some vindication like, hey, like, no, I was right. Like, this is really what this is. Um, Jesus really is the Messiah. Um, so to kind of view or change, maybe for people to change their view of her, but also to change their view of, of Jesus as being um, uh, illegitimate or, you know, things like that. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of reason for Mary to want the, the miracles and Jesus's ministry to really start. Um yeah, I thought those were those were both really really good, especially the just kind of breaking down how the um the word woman there and like what the what the context is and things like that. Um, I had never really looked into before, and so us getting into this was a a good opportunity to to dig in. Um, um, Aubrey, Jess, anything? Yeah, uh, like two things. Um, so when I, when I think about like why Jesus would have responded to her after he had already told her, like, this is not my time, but yet he still did it. Um, I personally believe that he responded for all of the reasons that you're talking about for, for, but for two reasons to, to one, honor his mother, because I, as we've talked about honor, he exemplifies that, like, in the, I mean, the Old Testament laws, it's to honor your mother and father. And so he wanted to honor his mother, 
but also um, because he responds to her faith in that because she knows that he can. Um, It reminds me of the story in Matthew uh, 15 of when the lady comes to him um, crying out for help. And uh, it's Matthew 15, 26 through 28. It says, Jesus tells her it's not good to take children's bread and throw it to little dogs. So he basically calls this lady a little dog. (laughs) And, but she says, yeah, even the little dogs eat the scraps. So she's basically saying, but like, Lord, even just one touch, I want just one touch, you know, from you. And so in the same way, like Jesus kind of responded to Mary in the same manner, like, you know, woman, it's not really my time. Yet Mary says, still continues on with her faith. Um, and Jesus responds to such great faith that she had. I mean, in throughout the the Bible, Jesus responds to many people, but he the only time it says that he was ever amazed or marveled was at acts of great faith. And so I believe that he also just responded because of her faith uh, in knowing who he was and uh, what he could do because she knew that he was God. That's good. Um, So since uh, Jess started us on the road to uh, pointing out heresy, uh, (laughs) I'm kidding. I don't think all Catholics are heretics. Um, I believe there will be Catholics in heaven in spite of the Catholic doctrine, not because of it, but I believe there will be Catholics in heaven. Um. But uh, kind of to, to piggyback on that, and this kind of came from some of the commentaries we were reading today, too. Um, and so there's there's some people that think and people trying to speculate about whose wedding this was. Um, I believe even in The Chosen, it actually is. It's one of the disciples. Um I don't know which disciple it is, but it's one of the disciples. No, isn't it one of his like friends? That's right. It's the disciple. It's the disciple's friend because the disciple was the one that actually brought the wine, right? Thomas was one of the servants. I thought. I thought it was. That's what it was. Like friend or something. I don't know. Thomas was one of the servants. That's where Jesus met Thomas to become. Okay, so that's what I'm thinking of then. The one that was doubting that Jesus was him. Imagine that. Such a doubter. Um, anyways, um, that's called foreshadowing children. Um, but there is, uh, there are some people that believe that this wedding was actually the wedding of John and what? The writer of John. Yeah. Or the writer of John. Um, and that he basically left his bride at the altar. Um, to follow Jesus. I, as far as I know, that is not really accepted in, by most theologians. It's kind of a fringe idea. And while it, it, it sounds like kind of like big and powerful and stuff like that. Um, I think it kind of goes against some of what Jesus would want someone in that position to do. Um, so if they're at the point where they're actually having the wedding, they've already done tons of stuff leading up to this. This woman is actually like committed to this man. She is going to be relying on him 
um, for to be her provider, to be like to for shelter, for safety, for security, um, all this stuff. So that would be a negating responsibility that you have signed into. Um, and I don't think, and I'm, I mean, that's, if he's getting married, then he's, it's a covenant that he is making with his wife and, and God. And so that's would be again, shirking of duties of that covenant. And so I don't think that that is actually the case. Um, there's also some people that, and this is the one that's, that's actually, um, you could get to be heretical. Um, but there are some people I know, Latter-day Saints actually believe this. Um, and I think this commentary we read said that there's some people in New Age that believe this as well. But they said that uh, this was actually Jesus's wedding. And he left his bride. Um, which, if that's the case, that means Jesus has a history of leaving his brides. And that may not fare too well for the church coming forward, going forward. But... Um, no, so I just I saw I had not really heard of the I I had heard the the first one about it being the writer of John, um, but I didn't never really think a whole lot uh, put too much stock in that. Um, all right, you guys have anything else before we move on to the next? Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> I was just going to add that I told Jesse that makes no sense because it says, you know, in the Bible, um, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. It's like, how would Jesus be the groom if he was invited to the wedding? But Jesse was like, well, they use an incorrect translation. He's like, it's not because like, and then he referred to the Jehovah's Witness using where those says in the beginning was the word and the words was with God and the word was a God. So. But if you read an actual legit translation, I don't see how you can come to that conclusion. Okay, we are in verse six. Okay. Now, there were six stone water jars uh, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, uh, I keep losing my spot, now become wine. It did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Um... Yeah, I'm trying to, should we keep going? I'll, I'll, I'll finish this. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay. Aubrey, I'll let you have the first shot at this. If you've got anything you want to throw out there. Okay. Um, so I know there's a whole lot of symbolism in the beginning of the stone pots and the water and stuff. And I'll be honest, I don't know it. Um, so we're going to skip right down to the end where he says, 
you've kept the good wine until now um to how jesus saves the best wine for last and when i think about that i think about the song uh you know the song you keep on getting better so in that song you know we're singing that you know jesus keeps on getting better but in reality like you know jesus is the same yesterday today and forever yet he keeps on getting better to us because like there's always more for us so obviously he's going to keep on getting better the more we seek him the more that he's revealed to us the better that it is and like ob- like we know that like the wine in my eyes i'm not gonna say we know personally i think the wine represents jesus it represents the holy spirit like that because we receive that and obviously that's the greatest treasure of our life what what else you know would we want to receive other than him and his presence so obviously my thought process is is the, the more that we receive the better that it gets hence if he saves the best wine for last because i mean if we think about it the last for us is eternity with him in heaven that's the best wine for last amen <laughs> Okay. Um, I'll jump in real quick. So uh, a couple of points I want to bring up. Um, you know, Jesus could have used anything here. Um, I do think there's some significance in the fact that Jesus, first of all, he used what was available. He used what was already there to do a miraculous work. Um, He didn't have them go get something else. He didn't have them, you know, it could have been, I don't know exactly the process for, for how they did everything, but let's say if they were, they had like bottles of wine that they took out and filled people's cups up with, it could have been where maybe he just had the bottle, like doesn't run out. It just goes on forever and ever and ever. Um, but he didn't do that. He used what was there in the room with them. I think that is significant. I think that is something that, uh, um, you know, we can kind of see a lot of times in our own lives. Um, Jesus is going to use many times what's in the situation. Um, I think another thing we can pull from is Jesus didn't do it on his own, although he could have. He wanted the assistance of the people that were there. Um, I So I had this really, really just remarkable one-liner that I said one time in uh, men's group back in Quincy, and I can never remember exactly how it went, but it was good enough that Andreas actually wrote it down so he could go back to it later. Um, it was... Uh, uh, I wrote it in my book, too, and then you corrected me. Um God rarely works without man's interference. Um, so the idea that, uh, you know, we can, we can try and do whatever we want to do, what we think is going to be helpful. Um, ultimately God knows it's best. Ultimately, if we're trying to do stuff on our own and things like that, we're probably going to end up messing it up. But God wants to work through us. We see that from, from the very beginning in Genesis, um, all the way through everything, you know, God made a covenant with Adam and Eve because 
God could have created everything to just be perfect as it was, but he created Adam and Eve, wanting Adam and Eve to go out and subdue nature. Um, and that word subdue that's used in Genesis 2 is, is it Genesis 2? Yeah, Genesis 2 um, is actually, uh, it, it means to violently take over. Um, it's it's a, a war term is what that actually is. Um, and so that was God's first covenant that he got into with man. And then Adam and Eve messed that up. And we go down the line to um, eventually we get to Abraham. And God makes the covenant with Abraham. And then he continues that on with Isaac. And then it just goes down the line, down the line, down the line. Um, you know, we finally see with with uh, Saul and then with David and then Solomon. And it just keeps going down until finally a man comes along that can actually do it perfectly and work in, in perfect harmony with God um, because he is God. And Jesus fulfills that. And I think even now we have that uh, even more so. Um, you know, God is wanting to work through each of us individually and um through through our lives through everything that we have in our lives now and one last point that i think is significant in uh verse 7 it says that he has them fill the or i i guess two more two more points real quick um so the pots that they were using were actually used they were representative of the law and ceremonial uh washing and things like that um, which I think is a, a cool, I won't, uh, dig too much in on in case I saw Aubrey smile. So she may want to bring up something with that. I'll leave that alone. And then, uh, oh, she's shaking her head. No. Okay. Well, um, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll monopolize the conversation if I dig too much on it, but, um, that, and then the fact that he had them fill them to the brim. And this is something else I hadn't really thought about until I saw it in this commentary, but Jesus wanted to make sure there was no room for him to add anything to it. He wasn't, it, he was taking what was in there again, taking what was already there and turning it into something new and turning it into a, a miraculous thing. Um, so those are just a, a couple things that I thought were um, really awesome. I hadn't really thought some of those I had thought about before, but some of my I hadn't. So, um, who wants to jump on next? Okay. Um, one of the other things that just <clears throat> that I was reading about and reminded of with the commentary earlier um, was just talking about how, like, the beginning of Moses' miracles was turning the water into blood one of his first miracles and then the beginning of Christ was turning the water into wine and it just kind of imitates the difference between the law of Moses and the gospel of Christ um and so that's kind of neat to think about like I've heard that before but it's been a while and I guess like I kind of needed that refreshing because I was like ah I remember that but I totally never talk about it or think about it in that manner but um we see those parallels all the time but just a kind of reminder um of the difference and how grateful we are that Jesus came because it would really suck otherwise. I think that's a good point. Um and you'll see that 
throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's called the uh, Christology, and it's just fighting Jesus throughout uh, throughout the entire Bible. Um, Moses was a a type of Christ. Um, obviously not the Christ, but he was a, a type of Christ, a foreshadowing. David was a type of Christ. Um, so you kind of see that throughout. I think there's a lot of parallels there. Um, you know, with Moses turning the, the water into blood, and then also the fact that Jesus was uh, using pots that are made for ceremonial washing that have to do with the law. Um, uh, I mean, just there, there's a lot there. Um, <coughs> do uh, any of you guys have anything else you want to go on? Because I, I want to, there is something here in this that I want to talk about really quickly, but it may take a little bit to get through. I want to, it's something, a topic we're going to end up coming back and visiting at another time, I think. Uh, but I do want to bring it up because this typically, this verse this section, the wedding at Cana, is brought up a lot when we're talking about a specific topic or specific issue. And I want to kind of address that. But I, before we go on, because that'll be changing topics, do you guys have anything you want to throw out there? Um, I was going to say, I was also reading a commentary today. Um, and... Okay, never mind. My volume was turned down. I couldn't hear you for a second. Oh, I'm like, oh, sorry. shoot, not again. <laughs> Um, in the commentary I read today, it was talking about how, you know, it says that um, they filled them up to the brim. And you're saying how, like, well, Jesus wanted no um, room for uh, speculation, you know. But the commentary is also saying that um, he, part of the reason for that was because he wasn't planning on adding anything to the water. He was just planning on completely transforming it from water to wine he wasn't planning on adding anything to it so um it's the same way like with us like when we receive christ like he completely transforms us he doesn't just like add to our lives he becomes our lives and he makes us a new creation so i thought that was pretty awesome okay i'll go ahead i'll read i'll read verse 12 because that will end the wedding at cana section then i'll get into this and then i think we'll still be good on time um so we can maybe jump over to the next so verse 12 is after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So the wedding's over, done. Jesus moved on to another area. But what I want to bring up and address really quickly. Wait, can I say one more thing? Yeah, go ahead, Jess. <laughs> um. So I also was reading that, okay, so it says in here that um, this was his first miracle and he chose to do his first miracle in Cana, which is, which was kind of like a really small town and pretty insignificant. And in that way, in that manner, similar to like Nazareth, how it was super insignificant. Um, and I just thought it, it shows a lot about uh jesus's character and even in the future as we read on in the new in the new testament how like he chooses the the insignificant you know people um to 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 follow him or to heal stuff like that people that have been you know looked down on but i thought it was cool how even he even was intention intentional to to pick 
you know, his first miracle to be done in an insignificant town. So I thought that was cool. I think there's, there's a lot of stuff like that, that, uh, we can end up, I mean, there's small details, but we can end up getting a lot out of, um, you know, another example is, um, Jesus, uh, being born in Bethlehem, like -hmm. Bethlehem's another one, um, there, there's a little bit of significance, but there's a little bit of significance with Bethlehem and it's crazy. Um, but the, the lambs that were used for sacrifice in the temple were bred and born in one place, Bethlehem. They had to be bred there. They had to be born there, which is crazy that, I mean, that ends up all tying in. That's where Jesus was born at. Um, but, I, I do think I've, I thought a little bit about where we might go after, because I'd like to continue doing the um, the Bible study stuff fairly regularly. And so then after we finish John, just maybe jump straight into another book. And one I've thought about, and we can kind of discuss this uh, later on off, uh, off the recording and stuff. But one I've thought about, because it's one that I think a lot of people don't dig into, and I think it's it's really powerful, especially if you really get it. And Aubrey, you and I have talked about this. I think me and Tiffany have talked about it a little bit too. But uh, actually digging in and doing a an in-depth Bible study through Leviticus um, and actually going through Leviticus is known as the through the Bible killer because you start your year off. I'm going to, I'm going to do the whole Bible in a year and you start off and you go through Genesis and like, Oh man, this is awesome. This is powerful. You know, everything's getting created and uh, these people, they're going out and it's conquest and conquest and then you get into Exodus and like oh, massive, like all these miracles and the plagues that hit Egypt and you see how powerful God is and um, the Israelites go out and then, God is like there in the midst of them and Moses getting all these rules and uh, Moses gets to see uh, God walk by, but he, he can't look at his face. He can only look at, at the, the back of it and like just like powerful stuff. And then you get into Leviticus and it's like, you have to be this tall to be a priest. Um, and it's, it's, it very much like it drops down pretty significantly, but it's in the Bible for a reason. And I think if, if you're going in and reading it with the intent of finding Jesus in it, it can be very, very powerful read. 